Hey there. Hello. We're here to do some listener questions. We have quite a few this week. Yeah, they're good ones. So let's just jump into it. Let's do it. All right. First up, we have a question from John. He references in episode 13, we had a question about how we would get around people having to be doctors um, if they're not getting paid as much and that people like without a money incentive maybe would not become doctors. And he's saying, you know, basically having socialized education, people could actually, you know, afford what they want to do. And hopefully some of those people want to help people. So like, wouldn't that put more doctors into the healthcare system? All right. And that's so he's saying like, would, you know, the, the common like anti-communist, anti-socialist myth is like, well, where would you get your doctors and your engineers and your high paying people? You know, nobody would want to work. And he's saying, wouldn't that not be true? Basically, yeah. Like, wouldn't necessarily having uh, access to education, not true access, not our bullshit access, free education and however much you want of it, wouldn't that incentivize people to, like, basically pursue their career dreams, their actual career dreams? Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think the basics are right there. I mean, I've been thinking a lot about this question about how, you know, capitalism funnels us into career paths that we're not necessarily passionate about. I mean, I know Mm -hmm. I certainly made some decisions based on like, oh, I don't want to starve to death. So (laughs) yeah. And I, I don't know, there's that quote of like, how many Einsteins do we miss out on or whatever. And, and, and you can definitely see the obviously the detrimental effects of of the medical system now like there's a huge increase in uh specialists uh instead of like general practitioners because you don't make as much money as a gp yeah that's a big part of it and doctors right now uh go into a lot of debt usually to do that you know so they have a pressure to go into those specializations rather than if they like oh i just kind of want to do like the very important part that a lot of us interact with, you know, more than not to say most people really interact with the medical <laughs> system the way it is, but still. Most of the time you you can only get to a specialist with a referral from your GP anyway. So like we need those. <laughs> I also saw this graph on Twitter the other day of like the massive increase in like hospital and medical administration versus actual like doctors and nurses. Oh yeah. Yeah. So like there's so much bloat in our medical system that's honestly like a byproduct of the insurance companies but like Mm -hmm. it's you know people who want to get into healthcare but like are pressured to make money maybe are like well this is close enough i'll do like some sort of hospital administration and you know but what if they could actually pursue what they wanted to do yeah yeah and they could do that free of those monetary constraints of well how am i going to pay for this i'm going to be in so much debt you know, so people would, would be able to pursue that. And it's not to say, you know, because like lots of people just don't want to be a doctor or they might start studying for it and they're like, damn, this is too hard or I just don't want to do all what this requires or whatever. You know, it's sure. But like it would eliminate that barrier of I do want to do this. I w- want to do the work. I I cannot pay for this, though. You know? Yeah, exactly. And like. You know, there's the other side of the coin of like, well, who's going to want to do the manual labor kind of jobs? And it's like, I'm sure some people genuinely like that one. And if not, we can take turns. We can find a way to rotate it out so that it's not like totally unfair. Like, we'll figure that out. 
Well, and it's also going to be compensated so much more fairly. Right now, those those jobs are shitty and like shitty in terms of pay. In that transitional stage where you are giving people wages and stuff or some form of compensation directly, you know, it, when, when it's harder work that people don't want to do, it's going to be like compensated better. For sure. Yeah. Everyone's going to be able to afford whatever it is they need. You're not working, you know, 10 hour days or anything like that. You're working like six hour days. <laughs> That's another thing, too, to tie this back into the doctor's question. Oh, they're way overworked. It's dangerous. Yeah, it's dangerous for them. It's dangerous for their patients, you know, like and and having more doctors would improve that and the improved conditions would improve the, you know, increase the number of doctors who, who people who want to become doctors because it's like the medical, the medical dramas industry will suffer because <laughs> they, they won't have as much drama of like, oh, man, look how, over, you know, how much we're dealing with here. <laughs> yeah. Even like med school, too. Like it's a it's almost a point of honor of like how little sleep you get. Like, I don't feel comforted knowing like my doctor had to stay up all night cramming for an exam on my particular illness. Like, oh, gosh, maybe you should have like been well rested so you could absorb that information. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> And they wouldn't, you know, again, going back to that monetary piece, they wouldn't feel, you know, as pressured to, if, you know, if they're in private practice or whatever, as, pre- as pressured to work as hard, to make as much money, to pay back those debts. There wouldn't be the debt. <laughs> yeah. That, you know, there, there's across the board, all these things that a socialized healthcare system would solve. And it's because of the intent behind each one, a socialized healthcare system doing the crazy thing of like being set up (laughs) to heal people and to keep them like healthy. Wow. Instead of just pumping them for money. Yeah. So it's crazy what that like shift of perspective can do for you. (laughs) Weird. I can't even imagine. Yeah. Another plus we would be pumping out pro doctor propaganda all over the place. Oh, yeah. So more people would want to do that. You know, it'd be less of focus on like, oh, I want to be an influencer or something. And more like, damn, I want to like help people. Which I feel like always has kind of been there. I mean, doctors don't, people aren't going around saying, hey, fuck you, you're a doctor. You know, like, but. (laughs) (laughs) I hate them. Uh, I mean, I I am scared of doctors, but I don't hate them. (laughs) All right. Yeah, that's a distinction. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, Thank you, John, for the question. Yeah, thank you. All right, next we have one from Charles, and he sent us a video on the Soviet Union and how they plan cities, and basically saying, like, I think their social and public transit is obviously impressive, but uh, a vastly underrated quirk of the Soviet system is, like, their whole approach to city planning. Yeah, this video was by the City Beautiful YouTube channel, uh, and it was really good. I really liked this. I was like, oh, I could get nerdy about this shit. <laughs> yeah, like city planning is... Oh, that's your I am jam. already a little bit nerdy about it. <laughs> you play City Skylines, right? Yeah, I play that a lot. <laughs> and I, yeah, I watch a YouTube channel called City Planners, City Planner Plays. Oh, my where gosh. Where he, he plays City Skyline and then kind of talks about like how this would be done in real life or whatever. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so you know, I've learned a little bit about it. Not to say I'm an expert or anything, but this was... <laughs> super interesting in that regard charles goes on to kind of say that you know this went way beyond just investing in like public transit social transit sort of thing 
because because it was a whole like system that's described in this video. Yeah, it feels like they made cities almost whole cloth. Like I can't imagine like they had to torn some crazy shit down, you know, like because the way that's structured is so different. Well, if you, you know, recall our Stalin episode, they had a lot of that tearing down done for them. Yeah, that's true. Uh, <laughs> After the war. The war. And, and even before then, when they're industrializing, they're building, you know, new factories and stuff uh, all over the country, building up new industries where they weren't there before. I mean, towns spring up around that, you know. Uh, this also, we're going to dovetail this question into a question from Dan, uh, who asked about homelessness in communism, because I think these kind of fit together. He kind of says, like, I think a serious communist society, you know, homelessness should be virtually non-existent. And uh, agreed. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Let's kind of get into this video. It kind of breaks Soviet buildings into like a couple of different eras. The first being, you know, the, the initial like, we got to house everybody era. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Of our goal is to get every person under a roof. And in a Soviet, in a communist party style way we are not going the american dream everybody's going to own their own home we're doing abolition of private property like you can own you know your toothbrush like the anti-communists say oh we're all going to share the toothbrush no you can own like your shit but like you're not going to own like a house like a big thing of wealth that you can build generationally or anything like that we're not doing that we are going to provide this housing for all publicly and this is a huge scale thing. Millions of Soviet citizens have to be housed. Yeah. So they, they basically build these like almost like dormitory structures and like they, they were pretty small. Uh, and then but the idea behind it was that you'd have everything else you need in your neighborhood. You can walk to the grocery store. You can walk to, you know, go play soccer with your friends or like whatever you need is walkable. Yeah, and and in that in the early phase that you're talking about, like you said, very very Spartan dorm situation almost, but they were just basically trying to get a roof over someone's head, <laughs> yeah, and provide things that they need. But like you said, walkable, and that way you have to produce less of them. You don't have to, you know, make sure everybody has their own full on fancy bathroom situation. You can do communal bathrooms or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And and I think it's interesting because I think the dormitory style thing, I think it it's good and bad, obviously, because like, it's good in the sense that their goal was, hey, let's get everybody housed. And like, it was a massive undertaking. And then like the downside of it being obviously, it's a little barrack style could be a little like, oh, gosh, okay, I guess I just have a bed. And that's it. So like, part of me wonders, you know, kind of thinking back to the dispossessed, if this would have been more successful in like a future iteration, like when you have more of those public works developed and it like, it feels very natural to do that. Like, I wonder if they could have transitioned that a little smoother. Well, I would say yes, in the sense that that is obviously going to be going to lead to a nicer outcome. I would say no, in the sense that given their current material conditions at that time, like exactly probably the best they could do, you know? Yeah, and they, you know, again, they were rebuilding after the war and shit, too. Like, yeah, they they had to just fucking go. Then we get to the Stalin era that basically started to introduce some slightly more ornate buildings. What was interesting is they, they talked about it in the video as being, like, 
the nicer buildings were for like people in the party. But I was like reading through some of the comments underneath and some people were saying like, oh, my dad was a sailor and we lived in one of the nicer buildings. Like it wasn't necessarily just like, you know, a pure, mm. you know, handshake deal kind of thing. And it, yeah. it was really like I kind of dove deep into those comments. They're really interesting to me. I think it and it could also vary. But depending on like the size of your family, if you had like nine kids, it's like, OK, well, you need a bigger building. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And then they talk about the Khrushchev era. I wrote down the measurements for this bedroom unit because I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. A one bedroom apartment was 30 square meters, which is like 322 square feet. What is that in? I mean, is that a, like a New York apartment? I mean, that's a that's an average. I don't know if that's average, but I, I would think it is. I mean, my last apartment was like 725 uh, for a one mm. bedroom. I mean, that's just for us to have a reference. The listeners have not seen my last apartment. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But I mean, I think that's pretty small, but I'm also spoiled by Texas landscape where there's so much fucking room here because no one wants to live here. <laughs> right. And again, going from a peasant hut to huddling in the street, in the streets trying to get a factory job to now I have a, a home. It's mm-hmm. a big deal, you know, even if it is small. <laughs> so from what the video said, one one issue that they had, and the reason I was maybe pushing for more of a mm, transitional or something kind of system is apparently in Soviet culture, it was very common to have multi-generations like living together. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah. And like, that's cool. I'm very into that. So like, obviously, when you have these tiny apartments, like that becomes a problem. So I mean, I don't know, space wise, how that would have worked. I don't know if it could just be like, well, you can live next door or something like I think that would be a fine solution. Yeah, or maybe uh, take that into account in the next round of urban development. And you're like, okay, well, we're going to include some bigger apartments for bigger families Mm -hmm. with more bedrooms, but the same amount of common area sort of thing like that could work. Yeah, I think so. And I also liked the the comparison they drew to like the United States housing developments of like, basically, the Soviets saw that and were like, yeah, we're gonna do that, but like, actually good. (laughs) Yeah, like, we're going to care for it better. And it's gonna be more equally applied, like ours being means tested, and everything had this stigma that that people would be like, oh, that's the project. Yeah. And there it was like, this is like ours, like that we all work together hard to build a country that provides this you know yeah definitely and then they also talked about like the difference in commuting in in these cities Mm, like in the united states the typical commuter you know lives in the suburbs commutes into the city and commutes back out but within the soviet union it was much more like you are leaving the city to go like maybe work in a mine or something and then you come back to the city like to live right yeah and they talked about this idea of micro districts. Oh, I love this. <laughs> as like the center of all of this. It was perfect. You have like 20,000 people in this, in like a super city block sort of thing with everything that you could need within 500 meters. I don't really know what 500 meters is, but that sounds close. <laughs> Let's Google. 1640 feet. So that's like what? A quarter mile? It's like a, yeah, a third of a mile. Third of a mile. I'm bad at math. <laughs> With definitely within a mile. Right? Yeah, yeah. Like that's very walkable. <laughs> Even I think that's walkable, and I'm very lazy. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking childcare, schools, senior centers, shops, restaurants, all just right there. That would be so amazing. And I, I again, I kind of dove in the comments here, and 
people were kind of reminiscing about living in these saying, oh, like I love to like meet up in the park with friends. And they are also talking a lot about the green space that's built everywhere. They're like, you know, New York, there's just one, you know, one big central park. There's a couple of other parks here and there, but you know, that was their example. They have them. But in like in these, every single micro district has like a park area. Like there's greenery everywhere too. Yeah, that's vital. And even more vital than that within a mile 1,500 meters, they say in the thing, but within a mile, uh, healthcare. It's a little further out, maybe. Maybe you have to walk a district or two over, but, like, it's there. It's it's super close. Yeah. I just, I think that's such an interesting approach, Is and it's very neighborhood-based, which we always talk about, like, in terms of, like, anarchism and stuff, too. Like, you would really get to know your neighborhood if you were just, like, constantly interacting with them in this kind of, like, little area, and... A lot of the transport was built to go from district to district, too. So, like, it's mm-hmm. not like you're totally cut off or anything. And I also liked how they talked about, like, it was very easy to, like, build onto the city. They could just, like, poop, like like a little Lego block, just add another district. Yeah. Or, like, me playing City Skylines whenever <laughs> I expand. I'm just like, okay, well, I'm going to build another little square here. I'm gonna put, And I do the same thing. I'm like, I'm going to put my little elementary school here and this and a park and... So I can keep them all happy. But yeah, that's that's apparently what they were doing too. <laughs> yeah, I just, I think that's so great. And just like seeing how completely insane the zoning is here in the United States, it just makes me like ache for that kind of accessibility and that kind of community building. Because like we just don't fucking have, you have to have a car in Texas. Like there's just no other option. Yeah. And then that's in addition to, you know, you zoom out and say, okay, well, they walk everywhere, but they can also easily get to mass transit to do the commute to work, to go to other places within the Soviet Union all for free. Yeah. That'd be huge. It's crazy. Yeah. And then, you know, they talk about a little later, they get to the final like Brezhnev style where basically it just gets taller because they have elevators and they also like have a little bit more variation in terms of like, oh, well, we're building this way up in the cold or we're building this closer in an arid region, you know, uh, local conditions, basically. Yeah, I think that's fine. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that makes sense. It's kind of like we were talking about the multi-generational thing is getting that feedback and saying, oh, yeah, hey, like, let's change things. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Adapting to the environment and the needs. So, yeah, basically, I think we should do this. This is very cool. (laughs) Yes, Definitely tearing all of these pages out of their playbook for yes. the future communist project. The commune will have excellent public housing, public transit, this sort of neighborhood style approach. Got to be a part of it. And especially, they touch on this a little bit in the video, uh, in the ecological, from the ecological standpoint. Like they start in that later era, start taking that into account. Um, in terms of like adapting the buildings and stuff to be more appropriate to the environment. Like that's something we would definitely need to do too. And designing things in this walkable way is just so much more sustainable. Oh, completely. And then with the green space built in there, like you can have your, your greenhouse, your garden, all that stuff. Like that would be so cool. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Thank you, Charles. Thank you, Dan. Yeah. Looking looking forward to that future. Just put me in cryogenic state and uh, wake me up when we have microdistricts. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next, we have a question from our friend Ian from DSA. All right. Awesome. Um, he says, a lot of socialist states have said the state will wither away eventually, and it hasn't happened. 
What do you think went wrong? And how do you think the state should wither away? All right. Uh, So for this question, I'm going to wear my Marxist-Leninist hat because an anarchist would just tell you, hey, this is why you don't do the workers' semi-state sort of thing. That's why you just abolish it and and don't bring one back. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We skip that step. All right. So that's one solution. But if you're going to be a Marxist-Leninist and say, well, the state will eventually wither away, why hasn't it happened? Let's take a look. So State and Revolution covered the theory on this. The brief recap was... We smash the bourgeois state in the revolution. We replace it with the transitional form of the state, which he calls like a proletarian semi-state. And that's just a tool to fight the class war to a victory, right? To oppress the bourgeoisie and and get rid of them. Yes. Smash and oppress people. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the latest dance craze. (laughs) Then you develop the means of production so much that You can provide for everybody just through voluntary work. There's no need to compel anyone or oppress any enemy classes. And at that point, what do you got a state for? The state just gradually fades into what Engels called a simple administration of things. You know, you're no longer doing the, all the other things the state does now. You're not not throwing people in jail or anything like that. You're just figuring out like, Hey, how can we get enough sneakers to people? And at that point, you're not really a state. Pure admin. Yeah, yeah. You're just uh, the people working together to coordinate. But you're right that like that hasn't happened. And then the question is like, why not? Basically, right? Yes. And I have a guess. All right. What's your guess? I mean, foreign policy. (laughs) That's a big one. Okay. Yes. That's my exhibit A. (laughs) Yeah. Because I mean, if you, you know, let's take the Soviet Union, for example, you know, they basically had to keep a robust intelligence agency and military because, like, we were gunning for them. <laughs> yes. And, yeah. and those, I guess you theoretically could have those that are, like, not statist, but, like, they're, they're going to do that, I think, naturally. Yeah, I think so. Like, th- these imperialist countries that are, you know, antagonistic toward socialist states trying to, trying to get to that next stage, it doesn't make sense to wither away if you're just going to like get overrun because like historically socialist states basically they end up still being necessary is what i'm saying that to to ask why didn't they wither away is kind of putting the cart before the horse sort of thing like they weren't there yet they still needed it to fight against those class enemies you know like you said in cia plots <laughs> um embargoes warmongering all that shit They still need it to defend against class enemies domestically. You're always going to have people, you know, willing to be paid off and spy and stuff like that. Or people saying, hey, why don't we try some of that neat American stuff? We can get Pizza Huts and McDonald's. (laughs) Woo! All right. Or, you know, um, you're also still, I mean, the, the social states that we've seen are still working on building up the means of production, like the building, building up the productive forces and like advancing technologically. So that they can get to that point of saying, hey, we've got enough for everybody. We don't have any more enemies. Let's call it a day. Yeah, I think this is why sometimes I lean a bit Trotskyist in that like, man, I think we've got to export that revolution or, or else it won't work, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I do think that that is an important goal to keep in mind. You know, um, I would say that Trotsky was the only like road to doing that. But no, yeah. no. <laughs> I just know he was into that. I, I agree export the revolution into those other countries while you're building up socialism in your country, 
gradually, uh, I lean more toward the view that like, it's going to be the countries in the periphery, like doing wars of national liberation to free themselves from, you know, imperialism and everything. And gradually as that kind of like closes in on the heart of the empire, they're, they're going to, it's going to get worse and worse for, I guess us, right? Like, cause the government's not going to be able to use that hyper exploitation, all the extra boons of empire that they get to like bribe us into complacency. Yeah. We won't have cheap gas, cheap food, cheap clothes, none of that stuff. Yeah. And that's when the revolution is going to come to the core, you know, and this is all who, who knows mm-hmm. how far in the future, unfortunately, oh, yeah. but that's the point I think where you would get to this final withering away of the state. Yeah, so I just think it's further down the road. We just have a lot of shit to do before we get there. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Um, once we get there, though, because I, I do want to bring this up, because that's almost dodging the question. It's like, well, we're yeah, not there yeah. yet. Yeah, I guess that's is, fair. I think that's true, but I do want to address, okay, what happens when we do get there? What are some issues that we could face? You know, because that's another way to think of this kind of. One for me would be tradition. Uh, once we get to that point, people might be too wedded to the traditions of having a worker state to want to ditch them. You think it's a little bit of nationalism in there? There could, yeah, there could be some nationalism elements too. Like just, Hey, we've always had this. And if we haven't like built up, if we haven't focused on international solidarity by this point, which to be successful, we probably would have, but still let's say it wasn't a point of emphasis. And yeah, that could be a problem or think of, you know, (laughs) think of, and we just, did the chicken run episode of like, well, where would, <laughs> what about who would be the farmer? Who would be the farm? Who would feed us? Like people would have questions about like, what are we going to do in this next scary step? Maybe listeners, we actually are releasing that next week. So teaser. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oops. I no forgot. worries. Uh, you know, but I guess one workaround or one thing to keep in mind, you know, keeping that in mind is we would focus on, having a thoroughly socialist system of education. So people learn about, you know, instead of reading about the Federalist Papers or reading State and Revolution, we're, you know, internalizing these lessons. They know that next step is coming. Yeah, yeah. It's not to say there wouldn't be problems or potential, you know, hang-ups and stuff. That's that's why I wanted it. What, what do you think? Do, do you think there's any other? Yeah, I, I think there's going to be a balance between like, you know, the constant vigilance idea that kind of Stalin and and Mao to Mm. some extent, you know, promoted, I think that's going to be maybe a tripping point of like, well, we need the state because there's always going to be someone who's trying to fuck this revolution up. So I think that could definitely be a downfall of like, well, we can't afford to, to loosen up. Okay. So basically where to draw the line as far as saying, hey, yeah, we, we've defeated the class enemies, like maybe the people would say there's always going to be someone trying to bring us back. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's a real threat. The threat of threats. <laughs> yeah. And that's interesting because from my perspective, I'm thinking, again, I've still got my Marxist Linus hat on. So I'm like, it is kind of correct. You do kind of have to keep looking out for people trying to say, hey, what if we just start, you know? Trading with the West, you know, just, I don't know, stuff to drag you in the wrong direction. You have to watch out for that. But then you're right. Where do you. When do you say we're done or when do you trust 
the people broadly enough, the culture broadly enough to be able to tamp that down quickly. And just say, by this point, who the hell is stupid enough to (laughs) say, wait, what if I just sell my labor to somebody? Yeah, yeah. Like, that's the the neighborhood freak. Like, we don't talk to him. (laughs) I don't know what his deal is. He's always talking about money. I don't get it. The whole, you know, world has like 100 capitalists spread all over. Yeah, yeah. That are just like looking around like, hey, please, can you work for me? And everyone's just laughing at him. Oh, uh, like in Dispossessed where he's like, I'm, remember uh, the guy's character? Oh, yeah, yeah. Was, Money. Yeah, I don't remember what he called his character guy, though. Oh, it was like the, like the foreigner or something like that. I don't remember what it was either, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. So we'll just have that and there'll be like inadvertent roaming comedy shows. But yeah, I think you're right. That's a little, that'll be about trust. And part of that would be about having a thoroughly, really democratic system where the people can say, hey, we want to, you know, we think we're to that point. Everybody's on board. We're doing away with this. And the government can't be like, "Eh, yeah, we don't care what you want, you know? (laughs) That's a great point, too, because, yeah, if you don't have that, democracy in place like the state can just do they can just keep going thank you ian for that question yeah all right next is um i don't have the name for this person because it was sent via instagram and i was too lazy to look up names i'm very sorry um shout out to you though (laughs) shout out to this person (laughs) Uh, and this person asks can i be maximalist in communism or is that a side effect of consumerism all right before you get into what it really is i thought that this referred to like the maximum and minimum programs idea in communism. Oh, what is that? So this is kind of an old school divide or whatever in communist parties back in like twenties and stuff. uh, People were saying, okay, well should we go for the maximum program or the minimum program? Like, so what they would do is they would put out like maximum program is like, well, we want to our big long-term picture. High in the sky. Yeah. And the minimum program is what are we fighting for now? Oh, that's like the conversation we have every week on this podcast. (laughs) Yeah. And people are saying, oh, you know, we should be maximalists. We should go out there and scream about, we're all going to do this. And then some people were like, no, let's just be minimalist. Let's only go for, you know, reforms nowadays. And that was a big debate or something. But then I was like, what, what consumerism? What is this? And I Googled it. I was like, oh, okay. Different, different kind of maximalism. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I believe this is referring more to the aesthetic movement of maximalism. You've heard of minimalism, you know, your apartment's very sparse and clean and modern. Yeah, mid-century modern type thing. Yeah, yeah, that's a good example. Maximalist is more my style, honestly. Okay. (laughs) I don't get to quite that point because I think I would drive my husband up a wall. Um, (laughs) But it's just, it's stuff upon stuff, a lot of layering, like you've got like loud wallpaper and like tons of pictures all over it and you've got like a gilded mirror you just there's everything everywhere it's very eclectic it's a mix of styles and it's busy it's busy for sure i'm i'm gonna kind of distinguish that as like more the aesthetic like movement of maximalism i suppose like where consumerism could come in is if this is less of an aesthetic choice and more of like a i just like buying things kind of choice Mm. okay (laughs) I'm assuming this question comes from more of the aesthetic side of things, but I mean, uh, the other side of that 
I mean, there are people who find joy in, I guess, shopping, right? Like I am one of those people. I like to shop. I think we all kind of get a little dopamine hit when you order something online. Sure. Yeah. So as far as that goes, I mean, like that pastime will eventually go away once we're in, you know, full commune land or whatever. Yeah. But well, it'll be, I, I don't know. I armchair psychologist here. I think it'll be redirected. Yeah. It'll be redirected think about what so what is the root of the joy you get from ordering something from shopping from whatever it's like oh my life is about to become better like it's going to improve in some small maybe or big way it's gonna you know be changed positively because of this thing like this thing is going to improve things and then you get it and you get briar's remorse maybe because it like doesn't do as much <laughs> as you hoped but that's like i don't know that i think that's a part of it is like i'm going to improve my conditions a little bit with this yeah, thing this will make me happy is is the root of it often and and we've all made like you know some some depression purchases before of like <laughs> oh I, I didn't really need to buy this kalimba but you know here we are <laughs> uh that's that's one from my little uh, pandemic one, history it's pretty fun <laughs> i doodle with it sometimes but yeah i i agree i think a lot of those anxieties will be like hopefully banished through through community and and the revolution and you know the new society we have built will be addressing your basic needs in a much more like tangible way so like i don't think you'll need quite as many dopamine hits in that way but i think you could still do some of like the shopping like to me like i i love to go shopping like with my mom and stuff it's about like the hunt you know <laughs> but you could still do that you could be like oh i'm gonna go to like the arts district and find a cool artist that makes clothes and and like go talk to them and like you could be more collaborative in the process you could be like hey could you make me like a rad dress that like has crazy flowers on it and be like yeah that sounds great <laughs> yeah that's true and uh, so maximalist stuff it's so you're saying it's mostly like a style like it's not saying like oh i want the latest and greatest of things that i use that's how i understand it you know correct me if i'm wrong listeners but i I did some cursory googling and also just kind of what i've picked up from it yeah and i would say like if we are talking about more like the design aesthetic choice i think short term like yeah fucking who cares you know do what you need to do when the revolution pops off you might have to reassess like you can't be so attached to your things that you can't leave them, you know, to like mm. go do shit that we need to do. You know, things are going to get really tight. We're going to have to like make things work. So like, obviously that'll be a little rough, but I think eventually we'll get to a point where, where we're able to provide for people at a consistent level and then yeah, it should be fine again. Like, I don't know. I, I was thinking about this, like, there might be a cultural pressure to be like, hey, why do you have so much stuff? Like, that's weird. Like, I know that was the thing in The Dispossessed, too. Like, oh, you <laughs> own things? Gross. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, I think that, I guess my distinction is, as long as it's, it, I don't know, the way you're saying it sounds like it's clothes, knickknacks, decorations, that sort of thing right? I would say, yeah. I, I don't think you can really be maximalist. I mean, I was looking at maximalist trends or whatever and they were talking about it like in terms of academic maximalism you know like there's maximalist writing and poetry and blah 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 but i didn't see anything that like you could hoard you know <laughs> it's like i'm a maximalist chef i mean i guess you could be a maximalist like you make whenever you make stuff you put a bajillion ingredients in it i think that's fine you know yeah that's tr- as long as you're not like you know 
uh, and I think this stuff is fancy enough to where peop- the, the society is not going to be like, hey, you used up all the fucking cloth, you know, <laughs> we need, if it got to that point, you'd have a problem. I think that's the key. Like your possessions and your your desire for possessions and, and what you have can't take away from somebody else. Yeah. You don't want to be, you know, essentially stealing from everyone else because you've got too much shit. But if it's just, I, I think if it's just the decor, if it's just that, don't expect the commune to carve you out an extra allocation so that you specifically can get the coolest shit. <laughs> but... You know, if you want to use whatever you, you know, whatever you're allotted to buy more of that stuff, that, I think that would be fine. Yeah, yeah. If you want to build a room that's all mirrors, that's fine. Unless no one else in the commune has a mirror and you took all the mirrors. That's shitty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's that's where I think. And again, like you said, we're talking kind of in that transitional stage where things are tight. As things improve, why not, man? Do yeah, you, for you sure. Know? And I think, too, there's other ways to be maximalist besides necessarily, like, consumerism and even beyond, like, decor and stuff. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but, like, you know, mm-hmm. there's maximalist art. You can get really into, like, collaging and painting and mixed media and, like, there's music. There's all kinds of stuff you can do with it to be, like, to to get to that idea of excess. I, and I think that's maybe the the discomfort. Just, like, we think of excess as, like, you know, morally suspect especially like through a communist lens of like oh like we even even though we've talked about like it doesn't have to be barrack style communism like that is kind of an instinct that we have is is to say well you know for a while there things are going to be tight yeah i think that the the grossness of excess for us comes from in a world of imposed artificial scarcity excess is is really gross in in its way I, I, again, don't think it's that gross with, like, knickknacks and stuff. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, my office is 90% knickknacks. <laughs> I'm not a style person, so you do you, you know, if if that's cool or whatever, that's cool. But, like, in a socialist project, a communist project, when we're working to provide a world of plenty for everyone, we are trying to get to the point where, sure, like, <laughs> use as much as you want. That's fine. <laughs> Um, and even w- just with style and, and, and with uh, art and literature and whatever, like definitely be as maximalist as you want. That's fine. For sure. Like that should be, I mean, that's art. That's, we like that. <laughs> yes. And I think your interior design is also like art. Like, I'm not saying it's not. So it's just, it gets trickier because it's about like accommodations too. So yeah. Uh, does it involve like the dimensions of rooms and stuff too like we're probably not going to give you a bigger housing unit or something probably we wouldn't do that yeah i (laughs) I guess it could involve that i i've mostly seen it as like a decor situation but i'm not an expert well you're you have more expertise than i do so (laughs) thank you the rare occasion (laughs) all right thanks again for that question yeah all right we're moving on to our lightning round 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 which may or may not be faster than the rest we'll of see. it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think the first one's going to be pretty fast. Should the internet be nationalized slash made affordable? Yes. Uh, yeah, so much so that 17 states have laws making it harder for cities to provide their own municipal broadband networks. So <gasps> they're already worried about this. Oh, my gosh. The GOP actually tried to pass a national version of that. That bans cities from doing Wi-Fi? Yeah, 
Oh, that sucks. Cause I, I love that. I, I think I went to Seattle recently and I was like, Oh, there's just Wi-Fi here. This is great. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's a super great resource. And that's just at the local level, but still the, and this is not for no reason the the telecommunication lobbyists gave some 14, $114 million to Congress and federal agencies last year. Woof. That was only enough for eighth place. Pharmaceuticals came in first with $356 million. Uh, Of course they did. Not to be a lobbying guy, but that's just, you know, ridiculous. And why did they do that? Because they make a ton of money selling this essential resource to us. Yeah. I mean, you cannot argue that it's not essential. But, I mean, it's useless to argue that anyway because they want to monetize anything that, like, essential or not, they're going to monetize it. Healthcare is essential. Food is essential. Like, food should be a fucking human right. Pretty mm-hmm. sure it is, like, according to, like, the UN. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which we did not sign that because we didn't want to tell yep. everyone food is a human right. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Cool place. So nationalization, we should do it in short term. That's a minimalist demand. Um, <laughs> What's our maximalist? Maximalist, I mean, take over the whole damn thing. and Because, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know, the shortcoming of nationalizing it is you're still running it with a capitalist government. But it's better than what we've got. <laughs> which is nothing. <laughs> so yeah in short uh, we approve <laughs> yes next from woodrow given that the working class is largely inclined to the right what would be the first practical step in moving them away from fascism and moving them towards the left it seems like it would be a very long path to even begin to move the needle i agree that is that is a long road to hoe <laughs> yeah yeah there and there's i think there's so many things to look at doing it's hard to say like what okay what should we focus on first like the question asks you know yeah yeah and it also depends on your perspective uh your leftist preferred camp (laughs) yeah i think so i mean my initial gut reaction was developing some class consciousness without saying that you're developing class consciousness you know having conversations listening with empathy and like I, I, don't, I feel like we do this with our parents and stuff and like just yeah. people of a certain generation will be like, yeah, doesn't that suck? Like who benefits from that? Oh, it's the healthcare companies. Weird. You know? <laughs> yeah. You can, people aren't dumb, you know, they just get fed a bunch of bullshit. Yeah. And, and people can see it once you point at it, you know, you can say like, oh yeah, like they arbitrarily raise that price on you. Like that fucking sucks. Like where do you, do you think, where do you think that money is going? Yeah, and almost everyone can get that, like, their boss makes more money than them for doing less work. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, that is a near universal experience in in America. Uh, Well, in any capitalist country. So that's something, that's a a kind of point of common ground you can find with even very right-wing people, as long as they're not, like, actual bosses. But even if they are, they, like, probably have their own you know, have a boss above them unless they're like an independent like business owner. Yeah, that's true. And even with them, you know, they feel like, oh, big businesses are pushing them out, you know, and getting a better deal from them. Like there's a lot of different ways you can empathize with people in that way. But maybe we should zoom out and start talking about instead of individually, how can we proselytize to people as a class? How can we start to move the working class in? the United States and other capitalist countries, how can we move them away from the right wing, like in big numbers? Is this going to be that branding conversation you've been wanting to have? Well, not, not a hundred percent. I mean, that's part of it is that like, I think that you you cannot come out and I I don't think we should come out and say, 
what we're advocating for is socialism is communism <laughs> yeah that's not gonna go over well to really yeah to to build the numbers like we should you and i and the, the listeners here you guys not Dave it. and dan not you guys but the rest of us <laughs> we should do that like among ourselves and like we're communists ha 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 but we shouldn't go out to people and sell it that way for one but like okay your leftist perspectives would say anarchists would say organize revolutionary mutual aid networks syndicalists would say organize revolutionary labor unions right your marxist leninists trotsky's maoists those sorts would say organize a revolutionary vanguard party i would kind of say yes just do all this check check yeah (laughs) i mean those are big things well it's it's kind of a cop-out but like maybe there's not like just one path we should be following. Like each tendency has like its own different path that speaks to different people and will get different people on board. All right. Can I read the next question and we continue this convo? Yeah. Okay. So this is from, I'm not sure how to say your Twitter name. Uh, Blatherous Soman one. I don't know. There's somebody on Twitter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would be interested in listening to your opinions on anarchism like Chomsky and Tankies like Parenti and how you would recommend seeking common ground. Ah, yeah, this does fit in. It totally yeah, and- fits in. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, my common ground is that I, I think we like both. I like both anyway. We have yeah. different balances if, you know, it's different percentages within us of each. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, our, our rising signs are a little different in terms of ANCOM versus MLM. But like, yeah, I think I think we try to provide a balanced perspective. Like, even within these listener Q&As, we're like, well, here's the anarchist answer. Here's the MLM answer. Like, you know, here's kind of what we're thinking. Yeah. The, the, the common ground, you know, is that we're all fighting the same enemy, the same capitalist imperialist system. And that doesn't mean you have to fuse. You have to form together your your party. You can still work in your different channels. Like I was saying, you can still build your mutual aid networks, do your labor union. Like that can all be doing its own thing, but should be able to like coordinate with each other, especially once we get down to planning for like the big move, you know, whether that's the general strike, whether that's just the anarchist revolution or what have you. We got to be able to work together when that time comes, you know, but I don't think it's bad to like be doing your separate organizations, reaching out to different groups of people and getting them on board in whatever way speaks to them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like the rainbow coalition, like from the black Panthers. Yeah, for sure. That wouldn't have worked if, if they just kind of said, I don't know if you get what I'm saying. Like it's more of a federation type of thing rather than, Oh, Hey, we're all in one group and this is how we all do things like you get to have a difference of uh, approach i guess yeah because different communities will have different needs so like it makes sense to like work with those organizations instead of against them like for instance there's a latinx mutual aid group here in in dallas and you may say like well why don't we just have one big you know mutual aid group and that way we have more resources and blah 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 and it's like well like they're specifically serving the needs of this community they have like bilingual speakers they make food that is familiar to these people and like they're they're serving their community in the way they know best you know yeah yeah and it assures that you're never going to have that fight within a larger organization of how many resources should we devote to this group of people's problems versus this group each group will be just working on their own thing and coordinating where it makes sense to coordinate, which is in the bigger fight, you know, not yes. in the specific needs. You're less likely to fracture if you're already kind of, you know, 
confederated in that way. Yeah. That goes against democratic centralism, but I think that's okay because you can still have democratic centralism within your Marxist-Leninist group. And then right. you can go and, and mingle with the unbelievers and do things <laughs> their way when you're with them. And that's fine. Yeah. Okay. What's really interesting to me is that I had a similar answer, but I kind of approached it from like the back end. You're like, oh, our common thing is our enemy. And I wrote our common thing is the end goal. Ooh, yeah. So, I, I mean, I think we could do both, obviously. But mm-hmm. like, I just, I don't know if that says like I'm more optimistic or something. <laughs> no, no, no. That's because I also had that as like another common point is we both want at the end of the day, an anarcho-communist utopian society, right? Like, everybody yeah. wants to get to that point. Well, for sure. You, if you describe that to someone, like, literally, and they're like, yeah, that sounds great, they may immediately say, that's a fairy tale, but they're yeah, also going to say, heaven? that sounds great. <laughs> yeah, that is <laughs> yeah. heaven. And, and, and it doesn't matter, you know, we have different approaches. We do. One of the sides is more correct, the other is less correct, and time will tell eventually which one is, sure, but till then, I mean, we just need to focus on getting to that end stage. And maybe like the differences of, of thought or diversity of approaches or what, whatever, maybe that can kind of like, we can also help not to split each other or tear each other down, but to help kind of criticize or improve each other's respective weaknesses too. help each other grow stronger. You know, kind of a dialectic sort of thing. Yeah, like I think it's going to be about like whatever movement has the most momentum at the time like okay the anarchists have got their shit together like let's all go and i mean obviously that's we're not fucking anywhere close to anyone having any momentum but that's okay (laughs) but like i think we have to have developed those relationships enough that they could call us up and be like hey we're doing this like we be there yeah and that, that goes kind of back to the to the first question from woodrow of like how do we get to that and i think when we were saying you know each approach has their idea of what's the best way to organize. They have that all in common is organization. That's the first practical step. Like you said, building up people's class consciousness. I think that directly comes from them organizing mass organization, practical, intangible fights that improve their lives. That's going to kind of like peel back, peel back their mystification of, I can't do anything. I have to vote for somebody or whatever, and set, and show them, like, we can do things together to help ourselves. Yeah, I mean, I was in an Uber the other day with, like, a guy who's coming across as pretty conservative, and then, like, we were talking some more, and he, like, mentioned, like, yeah, like, I got a job, and, like, my union got me a huge raise, and, like, that's awesome, and, like, we just started talking about that, and, like, I was like, man, this guy's, like, a fucking comrade, like, he gets it, like. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, people want tangible results, and I think unions are a fantastic way to get those of, like, hey, we're providing for you. We're literally doing that. I mean, obviously, you can do that with mutual aid, too, but, like, yeah, I think mm-hmm. it's going to be a multi-pronged approach. Yes, for sure. And, you know, another aspect of this, of the of the question about the, the division between anarchists and, and communists and, and how would you, you know, seek common ground and everything, another problem is... We say, okay, we're going to unite for for the revolution, but what would happen afterward, right? And no cart before the horse again, but if, if we look at that, you know, we kind of have to like say we, we don't know what will happen. We don't know if one side's going to try to take out the other side or because, I mean, that's happened that we, we've seen that in, in history, sadly. We always split. <laughs> but 
I think until then, we have the bigger problem is that capitalism is currently trying to kill everyone. Yeah, that's a big one. And if we don't overthrow it, it will just continue its death march. So, like, maybe if we overthrow it, we will end up with an authoritarian police state that ruins everything. Maybe if we overthrow it, we'll be too disorganized to defend our revolutionary society and we'll get crushed. But definitely, if we don't overthrow it, we will be crushed. So, like, that's what we have to stop. And then we can worry about the what if something else happens, you know? Yeah, yeah. We, we know one path leads to death. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> the other ones might not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Those were good questions. Thanks, y'all. For sure. Okay. Next. Where do we find the roots of communism? Would you consider pre-industrial tribal and nomadic cultures communist, or does there need to be a means of production component? All right. Good question. Another one from Dan. Is that the same Dan? or That's the same Dan. Same Dan. All right. Uh, so... Pre-industrial cultures would include feudalism and ancient slave societies, too. So I think we're going to focus instead on what I'm thinking you're meaning here of like hunter-gatherer societies, basically. Yeah, yeah. Let's stay away from slavery. I don't think that's communist, guys. Going to go ahead and lay that oh, one no. out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but humanity for 90% of our history, we were hunter-gatherers, hunting animals, gathering forageable food, moving with the seasons, being nomadic, as was mentioned in the question. Mm -hmm. That's what we did. Uh, then around 10,000 BCE, we had the Neolithic Revolution, where humans around the world start transitioning to sedentary agriculture, staying in one place, growing crops. Dumbasses. Now I gotta, like, work a job. <laughs> <laughs> you going one step further from Ted Kaczynski of the Industrial Revolution was oh, a mistake. No. <laughs> nah, I think the Neolithic, Neolithic. <laughs> Revolution. <laughs> I, I mean, there's those tweets that are like, man, that dumbass who... That dumbass fish who started walking on land, now I've got to work a nine to five. <laughs> <laughs> Could have been swimming around. For real. All right. What this does when, when transition to agriculture happens, you can see it as kind of hopping on a train. Because this is when agricultural societies start going through the phases of historical development that we talked about in when we were talking about historical materialism and everything, ancient slave societies, then feudal societies, then capitalism, socialism, communism, these different modes of production. Before all that is the phase you're talking about. That's primitive communism. Kind of quote unquote, there's some dispute about like, should we still be calling it primitive? Yeah, it seems harsh. Kind of yeah. yeah. But that's, a, that's what the Wikipedia page is called still. So um, Okay. Someone needs to update it, I guess. <laughs> Hunter-gatherer societies generally because we're talking about all over the world, so they, they vary a lot. Um, but generally, they didn't have our current notions of private property or money or social classes, estate, any of those things. It's very egalitarian. Yeah, we've talked about this before on the show, of just like you're working together to take down big game and like, you know, you only have spears. We all got to work together. We can't afford to be like sexist and racist right now. <laughs> Exactly to a point, there were still, you know, I'm elements sure. of, of each of those. But it was very egalitarian in terms of Marx's term here, rel it's relations of production, which is just like the social relationships that we enter into to survive. You know, right. Nowadays, boss and employee or feudal lord and serf. You didn't really have those like power dynamics. Guy who sits his ass back at the camp <laughs> while everyone else goes and hunts. You know, right. You didn't he have was that. out there hunting. Yeah. Everybody worked together. Everyone shared that. But what in your question, when you say the means of production component, that's the big difference. The terminology is too convoluted for its own good, in my opinion. I know I'm not much of a theory guy, I guess, but whatever. 
Um, basically, with primitive communism, you have those good equal relations of production, right? The, the, the problem is your productive forces, that's like human labor plus your means of production, basically how much can you produce for your society is very little in those early societies. It's very hand to mouth. Yes. You, you, yeah. Nowadays we call it paycheck to paycheck, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, antelope to antelope. Oh. They, they weren't developed enough to produce a surplus, so uh, it's precarious. So to solve that problem, many societies, though not all, there are still like uncontacted societies and stuff that, that still work in a hunter-gatherer system. Uh, but most societies hopped on that historical materialist train and started developing agriculture, surpluses, classes, and start going through the class struggle history cycle. Right. Right. When they reach the last stop, they'll be at communism. And you're, <laughs> you're, you're like back full circle with a good egalitarian you know relations of production that's egalitarian society but now you have really advanced productive forces capable of providing for everybody so that's the big difference okay so, i have a question so they get on the train could they have gone down a different track that was like we're gonna do agriculture but like not be assholes about it or do you think like that had to happen the historical what ifs it's hard to, to deny mm -hmm. any paths because yeah, I mean, maybe. Um, <laughs> I think it's incredibly more likely that they've developed classes because of the inequalities of capabilities of people. Like, yeah, some people are stronger, some people are weaker, this sort of thing. If you're just, it's it's possible for people to be moral enough to say, let's like not exploit each other. But it's way more likely that over enough time, somebody's going to be like, hey, I can just make people work for me. And threaten to kill them if they don't. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think the, I mean, it wasn't abrupt, but it can feel abrupt historically in terms of, like you said, like 90% of our time was as nomadic gatherers. It can feel like, oh, all of a sudden we have a surplus. Like that's, that's very surprising and very probably feels tenuous at the time of like, ooh, I better guard this, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it's a lot slower process than I guess historians because we kind of want to brush on past it and get to the real stuff from <laughs> historians perspective. Yeah. Yeah. There's some like archeology span person out there who's like, it took, you know, a thousand years or yeah, I'm sure it was more than a thousand years. Now they're like, yeah, they said a thousand, it was 5,000. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, definitely. It was a slow process, but yeah. Yeah. It's not like your dad was a hunter, but I'm a farmer. <laughs> <laughs> I left that shit behind. <laughs> get with the times pops. But yeah, that's, that's basically what you're, Talking about Dan is you, you did have sort of the roots of communism there. Nobody would have known it as such, but those those uh, hunter gatherer cultures had what communists call primitive communism, uh, and anthropologists call that too. That's like a broader term. That's not just us. <laughs> okay. Okay. Cool. But it was there. Interesting. So, like when we say, I mean, they didn't have property. They didn't have like everything was shared, and it was very like just egalitarian and that like hey if you need help we'll help you kind of thing yes well if you need help like and you're like in our group there was still oh, yeah, a strong yeah. element of and that's another thing that we would transcend is this like in group out group thing of like being global literal tribalism <laughs> yeah all right next from kevin how does distribution in an anarcho-communist society work 
In order to create things we have, there's a very complex combination of resources that need to be distributed. Capitalism uses a state of equilibrium to do so, and it is great at having a tangible, definable solution that you and I both disagree with. Yes, that's true. So <laughs> let's say we get our productive forces up and running. We're, we're really good at making shit. How do we get the shit to the people? <laughs> all right. Good question. First of all, when I was first thinking about this, I was like, oh, no, like capitalism is bad at distributing resources. But I, <laughs> But then I was like, OK, actually, I get what he's saying. Like it is good at distributing resources according to its own like class interest. It's just, you know, that that's bad. <laughs> yes. It's good at getting the people who can afford what they want, what they want in time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. All right. So anarcho communism, what, what are we going to, what are we going to do? Are you asking <laughs> me? Everybody jump. Away. Yeah. Oh, fuck. I don't know. I mean, I'm thinking of a supercomputer from Chile. Hell yeah. That's part of it. The Project Cybersyn that they destroyed after the the U.S. Mac coup. Coolest fucking name. Like, Jesus. <laughs> Cybersyn. I would yeah, watch uh, that movie. That plus the dispossessed central computer, central administration thing. Plus just like our modern technologies. I mean, it's, it's all about coordination. We have tons of super advanced technologies that are currently used. But by capitalists to efficiently coordinate like all the, all their production and distribution. And it's very complex. Uh, you know, it's, it's just pointed w in the wrong direction. It's pointed towards maximizing their profits. Yeah. I mean, there's an entire field of like logistics. That's, that's huge. And yeah, right now it works for like all the big bad businesses, but it could be ours. We could just take it. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> it's also, we would make that more productive, like more efficient too. Like, so there, there's a lot of central planning in our modern economy, but it's at the level of the firm. So this is what Engels called the anarchy of production. That's right. Yeah, because everyone's just like going for it on their own saying, well, I need to make you know this much so I can make this much money without taking into account like the other circumstances. Right. Everyone's trying to fuck everyone else over basically, yeah, basically. <laughs> and, and so you have all these different firms centrally planning within themselves and maybe that's a huge operation like amazon or something and like there's you know essentially a nation state's worth of central planning going on with them but side by side you have some other corporation duplicating that work just to see if they can skim some of that money like it's that's stupid <laughs> yeah like we that's double work it's in, infinitely more work because it's not just two so, yeah, so we would be eliminating that waste. Yeah, and also the waste of, like, admin and, you know, CEOs and just all the shit we don't need. <laughs> <laughs> and we will still have a smidge of metrics, which is not my favorite thing, but you do need to have accurate measuring to see what people need and and how we can get it to them and stuff like that. That's fine. It will. I think it'll be metrics with more compassion, though, instead of being like, well, now you have to piss in a water bottle. Yeah, it, it would be it would still be like metrics and administration in, in some sense, but it would be also like, hey, we're not going to like ruin people's lives over this. Right. Yeah. And I, I think you're you're right to say like those technologies can be repurposed, but like not 100 percent of them. And we mentioned this in our Luddites episode that like some technologies are just kind of oppressive in their own right you know like we don't want to track every little biometric movement that someone has you know like to to make sure that they're producing it that that's that's a little too far 
you know, but a lot of these can still be repurposed to serve the people to help us coordinate supply chains, manufacturing resources and, and distributing these things to people who need them in terms. What do you think in terms of like, because we're, we're saying big picture, how do we get stuff from production to people? What is like the final step? Are we just going to do like stores, but they're free? Yeah, I think we could do that. I, I think it's stores, but they're free. If you maybe have a disability and need delivery, we can do that. Or like storehouses, as Kropotkin would put it, right? You just put them all in somebody's house and hey, go get your jacket. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, come come on down. It's free. And that's not very efficient scaling out of like the, the city level that he was looking at. It's a big fucking world. Uh, <laughs> You'd have to, I mean, if we're thinking micro district, you'd have one of those stores in every micro district. Hmm. So yeah, you could essentially do like a a Walmart. <laughs> a Walmart of the people. Yeah. People's <laughs> Mart. The People's Mart. And it's like oh. everything's a self-checkout thing. Okay, so I, here's my idea here, because you're talking <gasps> so metrics. So that way you still track it. Yeah, you still have to go through the, st- the self-checkout or whatever, and you can have people there to assist people who need help or whatever. You just don't pay. And yeah, you don't pay anything. You just scan it so that we can tell, oh, damn, people really love whatever. We got to mm-hmm. make more of that. Nobody you know? bought this thing, so get rid of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah? Okay. I like the People's Mart. <laughs> <laughs> we'll call it our Mart. Okay. Another thing. Not everything needs to be distributed individually. So... This is one of the things that was kicking around in my head when we were talking about the maximalist thing, because I kept I couldn't get over like the hoarding aspect of Mm. useful objects, because I was thinking like in terms of like our library of things notion that we dream about sometimes is, you know, how do we distribute lawnmowers? First of all, we need to have fewer like grass lawns. We should normalize like doing better shit with your yard area. But still power tools and stuff that you use but don't use sort of thing like don't use often we should have like libraries that you can check that stuff out from yeah i mean kropotkin said it not everyone needs a piano guys <laughs> yeah so more communal thing and this kind of fits in with that uh with the neighborhoods with the micro mm-hmm. districts is in each one of those you would have like the like the tractor warehouse thing that the soviets did with the collective farms but obviously a lot smaller scale we don't all have farms (laughs) but like you know shit that we would need but not very often to check out or even stuff that you need but not every day maybe maybe you need it once a week it's pretty often but you can still go walk down there bring it back yeah yeah i mean i i I feel like i could just get rid of everything in my garage (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like yeah. I don't need an, I rarely need most of this shit we have just a communal Christmas decoration section come get your lights <laughs> yeah so I think it's a weird because we're kind of saying two different things it's, it's like a weird increase in centralization of like coordination is that centralization though like like coordinating all the economic production and stuff like that I think so I mean it's a high level of organizing and and admin kind of stuff i think that's that feels very centrally planned you know economically speaking but then decentralize in terms of distribution of like it's kind of at that local level of hey let me go down and pick up whatever yeah and not even just things too but also services like it'll be more community-minded in general i mean unless you're if you're totally introverted that's fine too you can like chill in your house or whatever we're not gonna force you to come out but you know instead of 
only being able to like hang out at home and stuff or go pay money. It's like, oh, I can like go see a show for free or like, you know, go hang out at the arts district and play an instrument or whatever. Yeah. One thing that is I'm thinking about now is, is this a narco communist enough? Like when we're talking about Mm. running this stuff for people, how are we keeping the anarchist side of that? Like who's deciding, you know? Is that another aspect of the question that we're dodging? Okay, so yeah, I think everything we've said, you could definitely apply it to a a socialist state or more Marxist-Leninist approach. You could apply it more to anarcho-communism in that it's much more decentralized, I guess. So like this would have to be your neighborhood or whatever your your unit of people is, has to then coordinate with other societies, right? Which is tricky. (laughs) Yeah. So you may run into, you may have more shortfalls of like, well, we don't have that here. And nobody's really in the mood to give their their stockpiles of whatever that is. Yeah, like, oh, we didn't get peaches this year. (laughs) Georgia was being a jerk. I, I think... You would have to, like, we've talked about this before, too. Like, you're probably going to have to eat a little more local. You're going to have to, you know, build more things on your own, that kind of stuff. It's more self-sufficient. Probably smaller units of of society, I guess. So, like, you know, maybe a little more neighborhood level or more districty kind of level. Less so, like, this is an anarcho-communist country. Like, I don't think that exists. (laughs) You have to kind of break it down to the local level, I guess, for that. But then you do have, you know, you can, you can form like larger federations and stuff. Definitely. And, and hopefully in that society, you will have elected people that are good at that kind of like negotiation and management. And it's not even negotiation of like, oh, I'm, I'm paying you with these goods. It's just like, yeah, I guess it's, it is kind of, it's a trade kind of thing. More bartery than, than pure like buying if if you're getting all the way out there, because we're, we're maybe talking early stages, eventually nobody's going to be like, nah, you can't have this because they'll just have plenty to produce, right? Like they, it'll be very easy for them to make enough for their neighboring areas to have, you know, the peaches or what, what have you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, eventually it ceases to be an issue. Yeah. In the, in the early years, though, it'll probably, honestly, you'll probably get a lot, like you said, more localized stuff. Mm-hmm. You won't have some of the more exotic things, but it's not to say you won't, you'll just drop out and be like using, you know, only wooden handcrafted stuff from now on primitive or anything like that. Cause I mean, we still do have, we'll be taking over. We have all the stuff. Yeah. So, <laughs> so we're just focused on building new stuff. Like, you know, food production, I think is going to be the big, like that's going to have to go hyperlocal. Yeah. Food production, medical equipment and, and, things people need in, in terms of that. Yeah, medical's tricky. But you also, you'll, you'll be able to make some cuts, like you won't have to do some stupid shit. <laughs> and you'll be able to produce more of the shit you need. And then again, it's just that question, like going back to the question of distribution, I don't think that's going to be as much of the problem. You know, just getting that out to people at that neighborhood level. It's It's kind of figuring out what to produce and then maybe how to I mean, maybe the only distribution question is like geographical, like how to get it to farther flung places. Yeah, I I think you could also argue that, I mean, kind of going back to like 
the first question of you also then have to find like the people that want to work in those, you know, factories and farms and whatever. And like, you have to Mm. kind of manage people's interests, especially early on. It's going to have to be like, Hey guys, we all got to like fucking go dig some latrines. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like that kind of stuff. There has to have an intense revolutionary spirit to get people to do that. And that's why Marx is Leninist. We just, say hey we're gonna take a shortcut we're gonna make this happen (laughs) step aside yeah but to maintain um your anarchist approach you have to make sure that you have intense solidarity among everyone to where we realize like hey it's not all about me i need to do my part to help yeah, yeah. I mean, you have a culture that is willing to sign up for these work crews for whatever it is that needs to get done. And in The Dispossessed, I, I know we reference that so many times, but it's <laughs> a great book. You know, they have Shevik like traveling across the, you know, the world basically to join different work crews to like work the farms when there's a famine and to plant trees and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So you'd have to, people would, I think, the anarcho communist idea is that people, through the struggle that they fought to get to this point would have, you know, realized like the value of doing that, of working together. I can't drop the ball now. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for your question, Kevin. Um, that was our last question. Nice. Wow. Another shorty. (laughs) We went quickly through it. We we're disciplined. (laughs) We're so good. Next week is chicken run. It's a great conversation. We already had it. It's good. Yeah, I surprisingly robust. I, I yeah. Dude, you told me how the hell did you get three pages of notes out of that? And then we talked for an hour and a half. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, I just finished editing it. It was pretty good. It's a banger. Uh, well, I'll talk to you in a bit. All right. Bye. Bye. Hey there, comrades. Just jumping in to remind you of all of our social media. We are on Twitter at Teach Communism, Instagram at Teach Me Communism. You can shoot us an email. That's teachmecommunism at gmail.com. Any of those places are good to send us an episode suggestion or a question, anything you think would be useful feedback for us or just your admiration. If you want to admire us in a public manner, and you should, you can go to Apple Podcasts to give us a review. It is the best way to help people find the show. Love when people write and review us. Please do both. We are also on YouTube if that's how you prefer to listen to podcasts. Or if you know someone that's the only way they'll listen to podcasts, send them to our page. And we have a Patreon. For five bucks a month, you get access to our notes for each week's episode, including the backlog of notes, which is a very handy resource for up-and-coming commies. And at the end of the year, all of the funds from Patreon will be given to local mutual aid in the DFW area. So, ain't going to line our pockets. Finally, we have merch. Check us out at Tee Public. You can find shirts and I believe also stickers and magnets and all kinds of fun stuff with catchphrases from the show or episode art, stuff like that. The link to that store is in the show notes, so check that out. Okay, that's all the internet. Join us next time for another episode of Teach Me Communism, where the class struggle is always in session. Bye, y'all.